0: back on A Young Turks Man, have we got some great guests coming up for you guys. Later in the hour, legendary film director Alex Gibney joins us, he's got a new documentary coming out called Citizen K. It's about how Vladimir Putin took over and basically destroyed democracy in Russia. It's fascinating, don't miss that, got a great progressive candidate coming up for you as well. Joining me now is Byron (laughs) Reese, he's the CEO of GigaOM. He's also written two books, fascinating. Infinite Progress, How Technology and the Internet Will End Ignorance, Disease and Hunger and Poverty and War. That's ambitious, I'm gonna ask about that in a second. And now the fourth age, smart robots, conscious computers, and the future of humanity. Byron, welcome to the Young Turks. Thanks for having me. No problem, man. Good to have you here. So, I, before we get to uh, the newer book, uh, let me go back to the first book. Did the Internet um, end ignorance, disease, hunger, poverty, and war?
1: Well, not yet, but uh, I think it will. I think the uh, the idea of, of technology in general being something that multiplies human ability. Uh, I think the Internet's brought out a lot of good in people. It's easy to list out all the bad things it's done, but it, it, it makes us. More informed, it connects us to other people. I think I think it has it's so new still, but I do believe it's going to do all of those things. Okay,
0: great. And Byron, I'm I'm very split on it as I am about the humanity. So overall, I vote yes on both. But so in the media, there's a lot of discussion about its downsides. So. I don't think we have to rehash those cuz people are so familiar with them. But even at this stage, what do you think are the big upsides of the internet that you're hopeful and optimistic about?
1: You know, I think what it did is it revealed a lot of things about people we didn't know. I think about my dad's generation, like he probably never wrote a word after he left college and and if I said, "Why don't you write?" he would say, "I don't have anything to say." But what happened is, you know, we started blogs and 100 million people started them. We we said hey review products on a website a billion people did that we said hey now you can upload video and uh, you know a billion videos get uploaded and photographs I mean, what it i think it revealed is that if you put tools in people's hands oh and the biggest one is it showed that you could have a problem and you could post it online and perfect strangers would take time to answer you you know nobody foresaw we were going to make the best encyclopedia ever by volunteers i mean it's just it really has revealed, I think, the very best in people and has only begun to do so.
0: Yeah, you know, I, I agree with you so much because, look, first of all, we're having this conversation over the internet, it connected us. And in the past, you would have needed a billion dollar media organization to do this simple conversation. And in the past, I know cuz that was part of the past, <laughs> I'm old enough to know that when you wanted to look things up, you actually had to get in your car, drive to the library, Use the Dewey Decimal System, get a book, or if you wanted to see an old article, instead of Googling it in half a second, you had to go get microfiche and look it up on microfiche if it existed. So the Internet is obviously a tool, it's a very, very powerful tool. Saying that, well, some people have done bad things with it is kind of like saying we shouldn't have books cuz
1: Hitler wrote Mein Kampf. Well, that's true, but other people also wrote wonderful things. Right. No, I completely agree. You know, not only just how hard it was to find facts, but how hard it was to find other people that shared your interest. You know, when I was growing up like you, I had my choice of any of three news channels I could watch at five o'clock. And that was about it. And there were, you know, half a dozen national publications. And there were not dissenting views. There were not alternative viewpoints. It was none of that. It was like you could. You could paint your house any color you any any shade of white you wanted, but that was it, and that that was the world we left behind. And so, in all of its messiness, I have to think this is much better.
0: Yeah, I know it's not a popular opinion these days, but I think it's actually fairly indisputable. What are we going to go back to the Dark Ages with less information? Because some people have used that information and used those tools in a negative way. So it's not to say we shouldn't do anything about that. But we should be thoughtful about how we can constrain that without limiting our freedoms. Absolutely. Um, yeah. So now let's talk about the future, and, and that's the um, the context of your latest book, The Fourth Age. Uh, so you talk about smart robots, conscious computers, and the future of humanity. So talk to me about that future. What does the future of humanity look like?
1: You know, I got really interested in artificial intelligence because you have probably noticed. Lots of people have very differing views about whether it's a good thing or a bad thing, and that's really what that book is about. Why do people have such different views? And and I learned it isn't that they believe that they know different things. You know, Elon Musk doesn't know something about AI that Mark Zuckerberg doesn't, but that people believe different things. And so I wanted to explore what artificial intelligence could do, and specifically, it all hinges on whether you believe people or machines. And um, the idea that we're going to create like a super intelligence or a general intelligence is, is not based on people knowing how to do it. Everybody agrees we don't know how to do it, but it's based on the simple idea that people are machines. If you don't believe that, and while the majority of people in Silicon Valley do, the majority of everybody else doesn't. If you don't believe that, then we'll never build machines that can do everything people can do. And you know people will therefore never be ob- obsoleted. Okay. I, 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 I deeply, I deeply believe also this idea that that these technologies, artificial intelligence and robotics, which do one thing, they increase human productivity. That somehow that's bad for anybody to have their productivity increased. And so I think the idea that it's going to destroy jobs is not not just unlikely but actually impossible. You can't go and make everybody more productive and then oh now there's nothing to do with that productivity.
0: Uh, Byron, watch out, the Yang Gang is coming for you. Um, (laughs) Okay, all right, but back to- uh, If
1: I can just say one quick thing about that, if you went back 25 years to the beginning of the Internet, and you said to somebody, hey, there's gonna be billions of people using this, what's it gonna do to jobs? They would have said, it's gonna be hard on the stockbrokers, hard on the travel agents, hard on the newspapers, hard on the malls, and they would have been right about everything. But what you can never see is what it's gonna create. Nobody would have ever said, "Oh, there'll be Etsy and eBay and Amazon and Uber and Google and Airbnb and all of the the million companies. And so that's what gives us that distorted view, because you can always tell what it's gonna destroy, but we don't have the imagination to understand what it's gonna create.
0: Yeah, uh, Paul Krugman famously said back in 1998, I believe, that the Internet would not be a big deal, it'd be the equivalent of a fax machine. Yeah,
1: I remember that, yeah. Oops.
0: (laughs) I hear he's really smart, anyway, so but this idea that humans are machines, I think most people outside of Silicon Valley really have not heard much about that or discussed it much. So what do you mean by that?
1: Well, there's two things people mean by AI. One is a very simple thing, which is kind of machine learning where we study a bunch of data and we make projections and that's like a spam filter and we know how to do that. But there's this other kind of AI, general intelligence, which is building an AI smart and versatile as a human. And n- nobody knows how to do it. Like I said, there's complete agreement on that. But it's based on the idea that, well, if everything in you is just physical and mechanical and electrical, there's nothing magic, quote unquote, then we could build a computer to do that someday. And then that computer would be you. And then two years later, it would be Twice as smart as you, and two years later, twice again. So it's it's predicated on the idea that human intelligence is purely mechanistic. Um, but there are other views that don't support that, and they're not all like you could have a soul, or you could have some kind of a higher emergence or something. You could have something that isn't just cause and effect going on in your brain. Uh, yeah. That means you can't actually ever build. Human intelligence.
0: So, Byron, I, I, I'm not actually worried about the intelligence part. I, I think we probably can build that. I think we could build the mechanics behind it. I'm not worried about a soul that's too ephemeral and or ethereal, and it's um, and not an interesting conversation. But I am interested in consciousness. So, what's I mean, your take? Uh, you know, or the two camps here on whether consciousness can be built.
1: So, people say we don't know what consciousness is. and that Actually, isn't true. We know exactly what it is. It's the experience of being you. Um, a computer can measure temperature, and you can feel warmth. And whatever that difference is, you experiencing warmth, we call that consciousness. The problem is, it's called the last great scientific question. We don't know how to ask scientifically, nor do we know what the answer would look like. And so, if it is a physical phenomenon, we don't even really understand how matter can have an experience. Um, how you know in inanimate matter can experience warmth or love or creativity. And so, you you have to say, well, where does it come from if we have it? And there's I cover seven theories. There's a lot of theories, and some of them suggest computers could be conscious, and some suggest they can't be.
0: All right, so finally then, Byron, what's your take? Having studied all of it, written a book about it, uh, do you think that we will be able to create machines that are in essence us, including consciousness?
1: I am unconvinced, but that isn't said, I just believe it, I I know this. All these years in, we don't know how the brain works. We don't know how memories are stored. And we don't know how the mind works, the mind is all these things your brain does, like. You know, you have a sense of humor, but your heart doesn't have a sense of humor. Like, Where does that come from? And then we have consciousness, which is something we can't even really grapple with scientifically. And so I I can't look at all that and say, yeah, we don't understand any of that, but we're gonna build it. I'm just, I don't have that much faith.
0: Okay, well, it's definitely interesting. The book is called Fourth Age, Smart Robots, Conscious Computers and the Future of Humanity. Byron Reese, CEO of GigaOM, thank you for joining us. We appreciate it. Thanks a bunch. No problem. All right, when we come back, we got a progressive Senate candidate, and then Alex Gibney with an amazing new documentary. All right, back on The Young Turks, fascinating guest for you guys coming up now. All right, Amanda Edwards joins me, she's a US Senate candidate in the state of Texas, running as John Cornyn, but also running in a primary. Amanda, welcome to The Young Turks.
2: Thank you so much for having me
0: on. Oh, No problem. So you're currently a Houston City Council member as well, right?
2: I have been a Houston City Council member, I actually just left my seat to pursue this journey full time as trying to become the next United States Senator. It's no small no small feat at all.
0: No, not at all. And, and you went to Emory University and then Harvard Law School, so <laughs> some great credentials. But we've also interviewed several other people in this Democratic primary. So Amanda, for the audience. What do you think distinguishes you from them and and why you should be the Democratic nominee?
2: I think my why is one distinguishing factor, which happens to be that I believe that all people, no matter where they're from, deserve real results in their lives. I've watched time and time again that people on the campaign trail make promises that, quite frankly, they don't keep. And I think that ends up eroding democracy. And people need us to go into these jobs, these offices, and to do the work that we say we're going to do and actually deliver on that work so that their lives can be different. When we saw the 2018 election cycle happen in Texas and Beto get within 215,000 votes of winning, one of the things that was striking to me also were some of the lessons learned. So, for example, he did very well with persuadable voters. But in communities of color, there were high registration levels. But uh, the turnout was not quite as high. It was under 50% of the registered numbers. Same thing held true with people under the age of 35. And so I believe that a lot of the time when communities stay at home when they've registered to vote, uh, there is a disconnect about whether or not it's gonna really matter in their lives. And because of the fact that they haven't or they don't believe that they've seen it work or democracy work for them. And so having a messenger like me who not only is someone who's passionate about change, but who has delivered change and results for the people she has served, I think will be the right candidate to be able to unseat John Cornyn in this very critical election cycle.
0: So I'm sorry, Amanda, maybe I read the articles wrong back in the day. So when better run for Senate, you're saying people under 35 showed up less and and there was less voter turnout than normal, because I I thought I'd read the opposite
2: register, it's comparing to the registered number. So when you have, he had high registered, high numbers of registered voters and for both communities of color as well as people under the age of 35. The statistic that I was highlighting to you was that in both of those populations, less than 50% of the registered voters in that population turned out to vote.
0: Okay, so we can still do better. Okay, I just wanted to make sure I understood. Yes, Yes, exactly. Okay, that totally makes sense. All right, like
2: because been, there's a demonstrated interest in voting by virtue of the registration. Yeah, but in terms of who actually turned out to vote, there is a gap. That if we could actually get that gap filled or addressed, we will be able to have the votes necessary in order to win against John Cornyn, who in yeah. fact is actually very vulnerable right now. Many people don't realize since I've been in the uh, running against him, he's been polling between 27% approval and 35% approval, which is quite low for someone who's mm-hmm. been in office for since 2003.
0: No, that's not quite low, (laughs) that's miserably low. Uh, So yeah, like the Republican Party has no idea what kind of trouble they're in. Uh, McConnell also polls around 35% in his home state of Kentucky. So uh, politically speaking, it might be a bloodbath for him in 2020. It's gonna be fascinating to see. So I'm glad we clarified the the point earlier, I understand what you're saying now. Uh, Now there was something else you said, you said uh, some people promise things that they can't deliver. I was curious what you meant by that, what's that a reference to?
2: Absolutely, I think every single time as someone who has served in government um, and served closely with the people, every single time we open our mouths, you have an opportunity to restore confidence in government or to further erode it. And when we don't deliver on the things that we say, a lot of these communities are used to people showing up for the vote, but they don't show up and actually deliver. I'm gonna give you an anecdote. Right after Harvey happened 51 inches of rainfall fell across our community and I went and checked on some of my lower income senior citizens going just to you know stopping by visiting them and asking them how they were getting their furniture removed etc. But when I'd asked them how they were going to clean out or remove the walls that had been soiled by the floodwaters. Their response was that uh, those walls had already dried of course as you might assume uh, you can't allow Walls that have been soiled by flood water to remain in the home. Otherwise, you're going to have mold to set in. Uh, so, of course, that was heartbreaking, but if I wasn't elected to be heartbroken. I was elected to do something. So, I mobilized hundreds of volunteers to go out door to door, check on some of these seniors. Well, the interesting fact of me bringing this up was when I'd step foot on those doorsteps and I'd wear my local, my government shirt so they know I was here uh, on behalf of the government, a government versus actually. Uh, uh, being there to scam them or something else, the first thing people would ask was, "Are you up for re-election?" Because it baffled them that they would see an elected official standing on their doorstep, yeah. needing something yeah. else for any other reason other than a vote. And I was actually there to deposit into their lives, which is a paradigm that we should be perpetuating and and, and promoting as opposed to the typical, which is that. People come around election time, they make promises that they don't keep, and then they come back that same next election time. And and those communities continue to have their faith in democracy eroded because they're not seeing the results. They see the people when it's time for a vote from them. And that's what I think is very exploitative, quite frankly. And I think we have to work against that with people who can be effective in office.
0: Okay, again, I totally agree with that. All right, so let's go to policy. Um, uh, what are uh, let's take healthcare? That's obviously a pressing one across the country and certainly in Texas. First on your list as well. What, what's your proposal for that?
2: I think we expand uh, the number of Americans that are covered uh, and who have access to healthcare by improving upon the Affordable Care Act in the following ways. First. We should, as it was originally intended, have a public option. An affordable public option should have been part of the Affordable Care Act. I don't think they had the political um, uh, ability to get it done, but I think now the country is in a different space and place, and so we need to incorporate having a public option. The second is to make sure that we have transparency in billing, that we have predictable insured pools such that we start to drive some of the Premium costs down. If you recall, after the Affordable Care Act passed, that was one of the chief complaints was the premiums going up or when people couldn't keep their doctors. And so having that option for those that need a public option that employer-based coverage does not work or is not uh, appropriate for them, then they have an option that is actually appealing. Also making sure that people uh, who want to keep employer-based insurance uh, don't want to switch doctors, all of those things have that option as well. I think those two, having the optionality there kind of uh, addresses the cost of just having a single payer system being too big in terms of cost. But at the same time, it gets you where you need to go, which is tailoring it to the people who want it or need it. And I think that's the best approach. Also driving the cost of prescription drug costs down. That's critically important. Um, I have interviewed and talked to people who ration their prescription drugs. That's untenable in today's society, Uh, should not be going on in America. Finally, also closing some of the loopholes that have been expanded under the Trump administration, such as short term insurance. Uh, we've got to close those loopholes so that people are not underinsured, which means that you paid into a system that you think will provide you one thing and realize that. You're
0: really left empty handed. Yeah, So that that point about the uninsured also totally correct. Uh, Amanda, oftentimes it's public option versus Medicare for all and uh, in the national discourse. And I think there's good reason for that. I I think those are the two uh, proposals put forward by different wings of the Democratic Party. But I wanna ask you the question in a slightly different way. So let's say that you win, you get into the Senate, and you guys vote on public option first. And great, it passes. So that's a wonderful day in America. Then, you've got a Democratic Party, progressives have a lot of momentum, Medicare for all comes up for a vote afterwards. And you're the critical vote, you will decide whether it passes or not, do you vote yes on it?
2: I think it depends on what is going to be the price tag and how we actually pay for it. I think right now there's been a lot of schools of thoughts about what the price tag actually looks like. In theory and in principle, certainly you wanna have as many people covered as possible. Let me give you an example, my father, Uh, was diagnosed with cancer. I was 10 years old and he died when I was 17. So in our household, we learned or I learned what access to healthcare coverage was by virtue of asking my dad if he was going to have coverage for his his treatments. And so I understand it's a life and death issue for people. Um, I think one of the things we have to make sure of though is that it's something that as a nation we have information. I think it's our job as leaders to make sure that people are fully informed and are making informed choices. Uh, But then also it's something that we can sustain. So I think that's been kind of part of the open question is the sustainability of a Medicare for all system. And so I know that some of the presidential candidates have proffered ways in which you pay for it through various forms of taxation. I think there's been some Um, jockeying of numbers of what that really looks like. And so I'd have to evaluate it um, based on what the numbers really are. We know that during campaign season, the campaigns themselves have their viewpoints on how something like this might be our turnout versus what ultimately the measure is before you. And it's been fully analyzed and evaluated.
0: Okay, so Amanda, unfortunately, we're out of time. I, I wish we had a chance to discuss that more cuz it's such an interesting topic. And we would actually have some significant disagreement about that, so that'd be an interesting conversation. Uh, and and I, we didn't get to all the other policies. But I, I did wanna ask, you mentioned the presidential candidates. Uh, is there one that, so the, again, the audience understands where you stand. Is there one that you're more similar to or have endorsed or are backing as opposed to the others?
2: No, I have not endorsed any of the candidates. I um, actually am trying to make up my mind like a lot of Americans are at this point. Um, Certainly we have a strong field. Um, I think it's unfortunate that it's lost its diversity. Um, I think it was interesting to see that debate stage lose the diversity in the last uh, round. Um, And I think that now hopefully going forward that that will be an expectation is that we have diversity not in terms of just race but also gender. Um, So I'm glad to see that there are women candidates uh, still in this race and still uh, taking a prominent role in terms of this running, Uh, because at, at one point that was not something that one would expect. And so I think these are positive strides. But as far as making up my mind or endorsing a particular candidate, I'm in that process, just like a lot of Americans are as we speak.
0: Okay, so uh, everybody, the website is amandafortexas.com, amandafortexas.com, it's a way to donate and volunteer which we always put up at the end of the interviews and we'll have the links down below if you're watching later on YouTube and Facebook as as well. Oh, I'm sorry, I forgot to ask one other question, Amanda, Uh, do you take corporate PAC contributions?
2: We have taken some uh, some corporate PAC contributions, but a minimal amount. Um, the basis for that isn't that uh, we have any intent to have any influence or influence by corporate PACs. The truth of the matter is I have a record uh, that actually speaks counter to that. And that um, you don't have, it's unethical to allow your votes or your decision making when you take a vote, a, a, a I mean, an oath of office to be influenced by monetary means. I think that is completely inappropriate, improper, and counter to my ethics and my standards. And so I have never allowed uh, my votes to be swayed in any particular way. In fact, i voted against some of the checks I've received in the past in terms Mm -hmm. of their interests, because it was not in the interest of, of the public. And I will continue to think about what is the interest of the public, no matter who has supported my campaign financially. So whether it's in a form of a PAC or an individual, no one should be able to put money in your hands and expect you to vote in a particular way.
0: Okay, again, Amanda for com. I'm so glad that we've had so many different candidates on so folks can see for themselves. I don't make these decisions anymore around here, but I would love it if you guys came and debated <laughs> for, the, for the Democratic primary, because I think it's that race is infinitely interesting. Did it
2: is. And I'm glad it's healthy for democracy to have choices and to have a breadth of candidates in the way that we do. Now, maybe it's not normal to have 12 of us.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, you'd be surprised but, some races like that. But
2: having competitive primary certainly is healthy, in this, particularly in a state like Texas.
0: Right. All right, Amanda Edwards, thank you so much for joining us on The Young Turks. Really appreciate it. Thank you. All right. Okay guys, when we come back, legendary filmmaker Alex Gibney, he's got a new documentary out. It's called Citizen K, and it's about how Putin took over Russia and pretty much ended its democracy. And it is haunting in its foreshadowing of what might and I hope doesn't happen here, but could. So you don't wanna miss this interview when we come back.